Good evening again, church. Um, if you would, we're turning to James tonight, so right towards the end of our Bibles, uh, just after Hebrews, uh, we'll be turning to James chapter 4, uh, and that's where we will be for tonight. Uh, so if you could open uh, your Bibles towards there in preparation uh, for us coming before God's Word. Um, maybe our way of introduction. Um, Douglas Adams, for those who know, uh, wrote a book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, and the story's central characters uh, visit some legendary planet, and they learn about a race of hyper-intelligent beings. These hyper-intelligent beings built a computer named Deep Thought. Named Deep Thought. Deep Thought's purpose was to answer the question of life, the universe, and everything. And so all we can come up with, with a supercomputer, and the answer to life, the universe, and everything is 42. Um, that's the answer. Deep Thought explained that this answer was incomprehensible because the beings who designed it, these, these foreign beings, these super intelligent beings who designed Deep Thought, did not know what they were asking in the first place. Asking for life's meaning might be like this, in which case 42 is as good as an answer as anything else. Nihilism would tell you that there is no meaning to life. Darwinism would tell you that you're a collection of cells here to live, reproduce, and die. Hinduism is the pursuit to be reincarnated in a better state till you achieve ultimate transcendence. Well, if there's so many opinions, and even a supercomputer can't solve this question, how do we actually get the answer to the question, what actually is your life? What actually is your life? James seeks to answer this question as we look today, chapter 4 from verse 13, and so if you would look in your Bibles and follow me as I read along. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Let us turn our eyes to the Lord in prayer. Church, tonight again, I'd like you to ask just to pray that tonight's message would be beneficial to you, that God would turn your mind away from anything else that's distracting you in this moment, and that God would be using His Word to be effective in your life tonight. And then I'd like to ask you to pray for me. Pray that God would give me the right words, that I would speak from His Spirit, and that I would speak nothing but the truth of His Word. God, tonight we come as hearers before Your Word. Would you open our hearts to hear from you tonight? Would we open our minds to see what you see? 
and God would be able to listen and put in practice what we hear tonight, Lord. Please use me, Lord. Use my words. Make me an effective tool and instrument in your hands, Lord God. Amen. So all of this, this, this search for life, right? What is your life? So we're looking now at the book of James, uh, coming forward to a book we haven't really read before. James is the sort of practical brother of Paul, if we had put it that way. He's not the actual brother of Paul, um, but he's actually Jesus' brother. Uh, but, but he's the practical side. We get Paul who really emphasizes grace. He emphasizes God's goodness in his salvation work, right? James is now the guy who's looking from the other end of the spectrum. To those who, who have leaned upon their grace and have trusted upon grace, but now are neglecting to put that into practice. This is the context we come towards when we come to look at James writing this. He really is trying to say, look at your life, look at your practice. How are you living? Are you living in accordance with the gospel that God has called you towards? And this brings us again to the text tonight. And so we really want to look at two main misunderstandings tonight. The first is that of our own nature. And the second is that of the nature of God. These are two areas we very commonly get wrong. Our our own nature and the nature of God. And when we get these wrong, our lives are often flipped and we become a delusion. We live our lives in a delusion and we put ourselves above God. We end up in the place of God. And so our first point tonight, James addresses our perfect plans. Our perfect plans. Let let us read verse 13 again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. The first time I read this, I thought, this is oddly normal. This is oddly like our everyday lives. Isn't this what each of us does? I'm going to go to the shop then. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. You see, when I came up and I came to university, I had my life in order. I had it set. I was going to make it. So I said, you know what? I did very well in matric. I'm going to come up, study chemical engineering four years, get that done off the cuff, you know. Then I'm going to work for three years, get a really good job, earn a bit of money on the side, enough to then pay for my MBA, That would give me the business side of things so I can then go into business and, you know, I'm going to use my business, build it up, buy up some other companies and God's going to use that and God's going to make that great. That that was my plan. Um, God clearly had other plans as I stand before you tonight, but but that's the plans we can make, right? That's the sort of things we do. We tend to come, we tend to say, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. I've often heard ladies talk in a similar fashion about their weddings. This color scheme, these flowers, this style dress, and so it goes on. We are a people prone to make plans. Prone to make plans. But the question still remains. Why would God be interested? Why do we have a hero in our bowels before us? Why is he interested in a statement that says, we're going to go and we're going to go there tomorrow and go to this city and do this thing? Notice the first word of this point, I, I. This single sentence, this portion that we read here is overflowing with this idea of I, or we if you want to be more correct to the text. Well, why does this matter? 
Why does it matter that they are deciding these things? You see, it all rests on one thing. One thing that each of us forgets whenever we say this. It rests on a presumption of control. It all rests on a presumption of control. Let me point this out to you. Let's turn back to the text. They presume firstly on the date of their departure. They presume that the action they're going to carry out is that they're going to leave. They presume the destination, the city to which they will go. They presume the duration of their stay there. They presume what they are going to do there, and they even presume the outcome of what they're going to do. Do you see they've just taken a whole bunch of things and said, we're going to do A, B, C, D, E. Yet they have no idea where they're actually in control of that. Oh, how prone we are to think that we have the future in our hands. How prone we are to think we have the future in our hands. We, we see this very much in our culture. Back in the day, it would have been carpe diem, seize the day, make the most of this moment. A couple of years back, I might not be as hip these days, but YOLO, you only live once, go make the most of it. This life is an oyster. William Henley captured it in his poem with the words, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Or how about some Bon Jovi if you're interested in some music? It's my life. It's now or never. I ain't going to live forever, but I want to live it while I'm alive. It's my life. We'll take it back to the Tower of Babel. It's the cry of, come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Who's at the center? That's the question we need to ask. Who is at the center of all these things that I've just stated? Who has the control to enact the plans that we are putting forward? Well, the world says you are. Isn't that the truth? The world says you are the one who's in control. It's your life. You need to go make the most of it. You need to go and do these things. I've seen so many people, even as teenagers, go, I just need to study this degree, get this job, do this thing, and it's all in my hands. You know, if I just work hard enough, if I just do the right things, my life's going to end up in a great place. That's what the world tells us. It says you are in control. And we suppose that we can come up with the perfect plan. I suppose I could come up with the perfect plan when I came out to study in university. We can suppose we have the perfect plan and that we have the ability to carry it out. But we must see tonight the first brick of truth of a Jenga tower starts falling when we look at my second point for tonight. Our imperfection. Our imperfection. Verse 14 begins with this reminder, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. See, James does not directly address what is in those plans. We can see almost a repeated style as we look between the two separate verses as we come before to look at verse, 14, verse 13. The plans made there, and as we look at verse 15, even as the plans made there, James is not necessarily trying to directly address these plans, but he addresses our idea of self-sufficiency. And I want to clarify, it's not that James doesn't care about our plans, but he's trying to make a specific point here. 
He's trying to make one specific point. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You see, when we come and we make all our plans, we do all these things, we put ourselves as the base. But do we really even understand who we are? Do we really even understand who we are? Do we understand just how limited function we have? Look at these people. Look in this text. They go, we are going to go, and we're going to go to such and such a city. We're going to spend a year there. Do we even have control over the next hour? Never mind the next year. But we presume we do. We presume that we have that control. But we do not know. In fact, if we look at our lives, is there ever a day which goes exactly as we planned it? So many things can happen different to the way we put them in place. But we still make our grand plans, set them in place, and trust that we'll have the ability to carry it out in the end. What fools we must be to think that our fickle hands will bring an outcome that we desire. Proverbs 27 verse 1 affirms this. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. You see, we in our own arrogance, in our own pride, we we think we can know what tomorrow is going to bring. We we can think that that we're going to put the right things in place. We're going to get the right pieces. We're going to do the right things. We're going to follow what people have told us to follow, and we're going to end up at that outcome we want. But the truth is we have no idea. It is just as likely that tomorrow we might die by an accident or by lightning or by a roof tile falling on our head than our plans might come come right tomorrow. We we have no certainty, absolutely no certainty. What does he say? James really goes forward here and he says, our life is like a mist. Our life is like a mist. It is there one moment and gone the next. The picture that, that I got in my mind is he said, your life is like a mist. As I remember those cold mornings when I was in school. And you go, and I'm, I think on camp if it was cold morning, you could do this. But like you'd blow into your hands. You go, ah. And you get this vapor come off. And he says, your life is like a mist. I want to know, has anyone been able to grab hold of that vapor when you've warmed up your hands? Anyone? Have you been able to take hold of it, have control over it, grasp it, move it, manipulate it? Certainly not. But he goes further. He says that it's not only that we have no grasp over it, it's not only that we have no control over it, but it's there for a moment and then it vanishes. Psalm 103, verse 15, we put it this way. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. I think for younger people, it's especially hard to grab, grasp this idea. To grasp this idea that our lives are short and fragile. We're the people that think we can go out and we can conquer the world. We can move mountains. But I think the only thing we're actually certain of is that we will die 
and we know not when or how. I have this fearful image in my mind, uh, even as I was preparing this text, that as we come before and we, we look at our limited days, this, this short span, this vapor that makes up our lives, that our lives will be cut short of what we expected it to be, and we will stand before God and we will say, but God, look at my great plans. Look, God, at the great ideas I had for my life. Much more than we actually ever lived it out. That's a fearful image to come before. We have convinced ourselves of the delusion that we have control. We've convinced ourselves of the delusion that we have control. And I know I've repeated this idea, but we need to get this in our minds. We do not have control. Verse 16 emphasizes this further, and it says, As it is, in this current state that you are, you boast in your arrogance. You see, we're so puffed up in our pride that we think that we make such good plans. We make such good plans. I want to show you just how fickle our plans are. Who of you have gone and said, I'm going to get up early for a quiet time? Who of you have gone and said, I'm going to get up early for a quiet time and promptly overslept the quiet time? Right? We make such good plans. We make such good plans. I'm going to do this. I even went to the extent where like, I'm going to make coffee the night before. I'm going to make the coffee, put it there, get up, I'm going to turn the machine on. And man, when you get up in the morning, it's like, whew. Because we can make the best plans and our arrogance, we can think these are going to be great and I'm going to carry this out, I'm going to live this out and I'm going to do this, but we can't even meet up to our own plans. We can't even meet up to the things we put in front of us. And even as we do this, we think that our desires are more meaningful than God's. We've all made plans and, and tried to add the little salt of, of God, will you bless this plan that I've made at the end? You know when you've set your heart and mind on something, on that girl or guy, the house, the job, the, the, the type of grandchild, the achievement for your kids. And you know, you just want God to, to place that cherry of blessing on the top. Like, God, here's my plans. Like, would you just bless it along the way? See that arrogance? The arrogance that we think our desires are better than God's. Or he wants us so much greater than his. I think a definition here as to what boasting is, is helpful here. A commentator has given a bit of an interesting definition. Boasting is an insolent and empty assurance, which trusts in its own power and resources, and shamefully despises and violates divine laws and human rights. An impious and empty presumption which trusts in the stability of earthly things. We see how that this word for arrogance used in the Greek is only used once elsewhere in the Bible. It's used in 1 John 2 verse 16, which reads, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That same word for arrogance is that same phrase used for pride of life. Pride of life. Doesn't it describe many of the states that we're in? Such pride we have in our lives, such pride that we'll be able to put things together, pride that we'll even be able to grow ourselves in our Christian walks. 
A commentator even gives a further description on this term of arrogance and what that word really means. It used to almost mean a traveling salesman. Um, the word that the commentator used was a wandering quack. Um, this guy would offer cures, pretend to be a doctor, offer cures which were no cures, and boasted to things which he was not able to do. Doesn't that describe many of our lives? We boast in things that we are incapable of doing. I think for many of us, we we might live our Christian walks in in a means of functional atheism. What's functional atheism? Functional atheism is this idea that, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, my life is in God's hand. I trust it into his hands. But you know what? I'm going to put my life in place like I want to do it. Besides that name tag that says Christian, besides that identification at the end of your name, in all ways, in all means of life, you would live your life the exact way an atheist would. Because the one who's in control, at least the one who thinks he's in control, is you and not God. And me, just to point at this, how easy will we say that we have no prayer requests? In essence, saying, God, we have no need for you. Another commentator would say, all such boasting, when life is so precarious, is worse than absurd. It is wicked. A positive sin, a specimen of the ungodly haughtiness of which men should repent. And we'll come back to this idea again as we go towards the end. But, but I want this to sit. I want this to stick. The wickedness of our hearts. We are like a vapor, like a mist. Comes and then vanishes. And so we start off and we look and we've described now this, this view, this incorrect view of the self. This incorrect view of the self. But as I said in the start of the sermon, it's not the only place we get it wrong. We get it wrong in my third point for tonight, the sovereign God. The sovereign God. We're not here uh, to play, even as we come to look at the next portion of our text, we're not here to play a game of semantics or language. Uh, It's not just putting that phrase over there, if the Lord wills. Because we can easily go, if the Lord wills, then my plans will work. We're not here to play a game of language. We're not here just to pay that tax of the Lord wills before we lay out our plans. No, certainly not. We're here to acknowledge that, that God is the one who is in control. Verse 15 tells us that God is the one who will determine even if we have a tomorrow. Maybe let me read that text just to really hit it home. It says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, we will live. Right? It is only if God chooses, if God decides that you are going to have a tomorrow, that you will live tomorrow. It is only on the basis of Him saying that and doing that and acting that in our lives. But it goes even further than that. He includes in that text and He says, as He continues, He says, The Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It is if the Lord wills that we will go one way or another. It is this the Lord wills that we will study one thing or study another thing. 
You see, it is God that directs our lives. It is His providence. It is His sovereign will that takes us in a certain direction. Not our own. No matter how much we think we have our hands on this, no matter how much we think we are the ones who are driving and steering this ship, it is God who is sitting there as the pilot. It is God who will decide, not you. What is common to hear at a young person's funeral? Oh, how he was gone before his time. How, how he has gone before his time. Do you see even in the statement how it presumes that we, we should have 60, days of life, 60 years of life, 70 years of life? Is it not God who appoints the ends and the days of man? Is it not God who decides their limits and their span? Yet we say, God, you ended his life too early. Again, our own arrogance before God. The reality is, though we may think we have our lives in our hands, we are dependent each moment for our breath and dependent each moment whether we will accomplish anything in our days. Our life and success are completely subject to the will of God. You see, our call tonight is, is not to make God into a shape that fits our plans, but to realize that the plans of our entire lives are in His hands. Proverbs 69 affirms this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Each of us stands at the mercy of God. And the sooner we would realize this, the sooner we would see our need for Him. Have we any power to determine the sunrise or the sunset? Have we any authority over the wind and the waves? Do we have the ability to change hearts or give life to the dead? Not at all. But we know the one who does. We know the one who does. Spurgeon has a great, great quote, and he says, There are two great certainties about things that shall come to pass. One is that God knows, and the other is that we do not know. Yeah, then we transition. We come to these two misunderstandings. The, the finite nature of our lives, the limitations we have, and the providence of God, the one who's actually in control, the one who actually lives and moves and controls each thing. And we come to our fourth point. Humility. The only right response. The only right response. You see, the only conclusion we can come to, when we come to realize just what our lives are, when we come to realize just who God is, is to humble ourselves before Him. To realize, God, I have been arrogant before You. God, I have presumed things of which I had no control. But I want to look tonight specifically of humility in two areas. The first one that we're looking at is that we are not God. We are not God. We've discussed at length our fragility and the featuring nature that separates us from the sovereign God. But we have, a need, we have this need of humility that describes that we are in need of God. That we're not God. We're not equal to Him. We don't stand next to Him. We don't stand beside Him. We stand far below Him, seeking and saying, God, I need you. God, I need you for my daily bread. I need you for my daily plans. 
I need you, God, that, that you would provide for me, that you would grow me, that you would show me the way. Because, God, I'm so empty. God, I lack control. Spurgeon points something out in the text, and he says, Notice these people, while they thought everything was at their disposal, used everything for worldly objects. What did they say? Did they determine with each other, We will today or tomorrow do such or such a thing for the glory of God and for the extension of His kingdom? Oh, no. There was not a word about God in it from beginning to end. I wish that we'd come to understand this. I really wish that, that I personally would come to understand this, that I'm not God. I think if we, if, we, if we really understood that we're not God, we would spend so much more time on our knees seeking the face of the one who knows what is to happen than trying to plan our steps ahead of us. When we come to realize that we're not God, we would spend so much time being beholden unto him and going, God, would you direct my life? God, with your plans and work out in my life, because you are the one who has the power to enact it. You are the one who has control. But it's not only this. When we come to understand that we're in need of God, and we come to understand that we're not God, Psalm 39 verse 4 says this, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. I want to emphasize that first portion. Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. I, th- I think many of us haven't learned to number our, number our days. Look at our procrastination. Isn't procrastination just a presumption that we will have tomorrow? I'm hoping, I'm hoping that we will number our days. Because what is your life? Your life is a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. And I hope that at this point, that as we seek to number our days, that we would see men and women who will stand up and be counted. Where are the men and women in this church who will stand up for what matters? Where are the men and women? Where are the, those Sunday school teachers who are willing to get on their knees and pray for those in their classes to seek God in desperation? Where are those who are willing to give up all they have for the needy? Where are those who are willing to serve beyond expectation? Where are those who are willing to go out to the streets, their neighbors, their families, to their coworkers to share the good news of God? I think if we had a better description of how short our lives are, how little we actually have, We make so much better use of it. Where are those men? Where are those women? I'm hoping that tonight that that God, that the Spirit would stir in your heart. That you'd come to number your days and be changed. To set your mind on the things above. To set your mind on things that really matter. I desire none of us to come before God and, and God says, what did you do with your life? What did you do with those short vapor that I gave you? And all we have to show is stuff. All we have to show is stuff. Here's my degree. Here's my car. 
I'd hope that we're going to have more to show before God when we come to stand and count before Him. The second area of humility that we need to come before God is that we're not good. We are not good. To return to verse 16, all such boasting is evil. Who of us have not set our plans and trusted upon our own abilities? I think each and every one of us would stand guilty. I think none would escape. Every single one of us has boasted in our own plans. Are we not then all guilty of having committed evil and having accounted ourselves greater than God and asked God to submit to our plans? And I really think this is an important portion where we need to just pause. It's this understanding that we're not good. We're not good. But I'm glad that Psalm 144 verse 3 says this. O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. What grace it is that the infinite God, the infinite God, would look upon such wicked creatures, such wicked souls, with such short and fleeting lives. And God regards him. God sees. God sees him. But we still come with an issue of that wickedness in our hearts. I'm reminded of another portion where we see the Bible speak of God's will of decree. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so I want to return back to where we were earlier. Church, are we willing to repent? Willing to say, you know what, God, I did put my own plans in place. God, I did seek that you would submit to my plans. But God, I want to cling to that cross. And I want to say tonight, if, if you've never come to trust in the work that was done by God's Son, Jesus Christ, on that cross to take away that wickedness that is found within us, that you're in a bad position. Because one day, when this fleeting life is over, you will come to stand before God in judgment. But for each of us who have at one point in our lives, submit our lives to God, we need to remember that we are still called to live. We're called to number our days. And we're called to come back and be washed by that blood. To remember that cross day in and day out. To live our lives being filled by the gospel. Washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Seeking refuge in Him as we seek to align ourselves not with our own will, but with God's will. And so in conclusion, I want you to sit with that question. 
What is your life? What is your life? Let us pray. God, I'm grateful that you give us your word. I'm grateful, Lord, that you speak to us. But Lord, I know the state of my own heart. And God, I know how guilty I stand before you. God, I know how many times I I try to set my own path. And God, I pray, I pray that tonight each of us would wrestle with this question, Lord. What is our life? What does it mean? What are we living for? And have we accounted the number of our days? Pray this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.